Just as I began my life anew, June died. Her collapsing body finally gave in and she left us. At her funeral, men and women came from everywhere. People who had known her for years, girls she had only met once or twice. Her end was hard, just as much of her life was hard. Yet at the same time, there was transcendence. She was interested in the metaphysical knot of being alive, in the dignity of the struggle to live. My return to public life came in November, when the now-defunct television book show Between the Lines rang to ask if I would consider doing some dummy interviews while they auditioned several new presenters. I didn't, of course, tell them that I would have hung upside down naked, colostomy bag swinging, for $400. I had no money whatsoever. Christmas was looming, and Les saw before him only endless years of work and subsistence living. We had no spare cash, no savings whatsoever. I had not got the literature board grant for which I had applied, and I can't say I was surprised. My application had been a hasty one, and I suppose I was hoping the weight of the work which had gone before would get me over the line. It had not. After 11 years of full-time fiction writing, I finally admitted defeat. I could not live any longer with the whiff of Les's martyrdom, and I could no longer stand not having any money or savings of my own. I tried not to feel as if I was making a decision between writing and my second marriage, but I have to tell you that sometimes it felt like that. And do you want to know how Les and I learnt again to dance that ancient dance? Despite all the conflict between us, our sensual life remains our true home, the one place where we speak wordlessly and most deeply. In this safe harbour, I learnt how to trust again, how to offer myself up without fear. Through Les's patience and tenderness, I learnt again the dance of my limbs. For that, I thank him. Do not underestimate the full implications of this. I put off going back into hospital for as long as I was able. I put it off because I did not want to know the worst, that if the fistula had not healed itself, I would require yet another operation. I put it off because it's actually quite hard to organise a six-week absence from your life while you recover and someone else stands in for you. I put it off too because I did not really want to undergo what is known as a flap repair if the fistula had not healed itself. In this procedure, done through the rectum rather than the vagina, a section of bowel is brought down to cover the fistula. My new doctor was what was known as a colorectal surgeon. The professor had effectively told me that there was nothing more to be done for me through the vaginal end, so to speak, so he's handing me over to the rectal specialist to see if they could fix me. In December, I reluctantly went back into hospital. The doctor informed me that he was going to do a thorough examination under anaesthetic to find out if I still had a fistula. If I did not, he would talk to me at a later date about reversing the colostomy as soon as possible. If he found that the fistula was still present he would do the flap repair on the spot. Not until I woke from the anaesthetic would I learn whether the fistula had healed itself. If it had not, and I had required a repair, I would have to wait until the repair had healed sufficiently and then wait again until further tests on the efficacy of the repair before the colostomy could be reversed. When I woke up, I heard someone trying to tell me that the fistula was gone. It was the news I had been waiting to hear for so long Yet when it came, it felt oddly anticlimactic. Even through my drugged haze, I sensed that the mood was muted, not fully celebratory. 
Within hours, I learnt that even though the fistula had healed, my anal sphincter muscle was in extremely poor shape as a result of tearing and repeated surgeries. The doctor was worried that if the colostomy was reversed, I would find myself incontinent. He wanted to talk to me about the possibility of repairing my anal sphincter muscle before he even considered a reversal. In the new year of 1998, I began to teach novel writing one day a week at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology University, frantically trying to finish this memoir as well. In order to get the job, I didn't have to go through the rigours of a formal interview, but simply went in for a quiet chat with the two course coordinators, who also happened to be writers themselves. Luckily for me, the RMIT course prefers to employ working writers as teachers, rather than academics. I was being paid sessional rates, which is to say I was paid for the time I spent in the classroom only, and not for preparation or the reading and marking of manuscripts. I spent two full weeks, unpaid, preparing for the first few lessons. It was hardly the return to lucrative employment I had envisaged. At RMIT, one of the administrative staff in the department where I began was a woman who was once a man. A complete artificial vagina had been constructed in her body where none before had existed. On bad days, I thought, they can turn a man into a woman, but they can't fix me. On good days, I thought, my colostomy is my badge of honour, my medal of flesh. Every woman who is given birth wears this medal, only most are invisible. At the end of summer, I wheeled Casper and Elliot in the double stroller to a fete at an old people's home. There was a band playing, and the old men and women sitting in their wheelchairs tapped their slippered feet. Some clapped their withered hands. As I stood with my hands resting on the stroller, the man standing next to me smiled at us. Like me, his hands rested on a kind of stroller too, only his took the form of a wheelchair. He was the adult son wheeling his infant mother. I smiled back at him, then looked down at my boy's still heads. They were concentrating on the music, and I suddenly understood that one day their grown hands might rest on such a handle too. Their hands looked impossibly small. In late May, I organised substitute teachers for my class and returned to hospital for the sphincter repair. This time, my parents paid for me to go into hospital as a private patient, ensuring that I would be able to nominate exact dates, have the doctor I wanted, and get a private room. I was grateful, but I was also ashamed to find myself at 41 having to accept my parents' money. I will spare you yet another hospital visit, with its smells of overcooked food, antibacterial soap, dying flowers... I will spare you the sound of IV drips beeping in the night, incessant calls for a nurse, the constant low buzz of televisions. When I came home, I couldn't sit down, and I lived on my back or stood upright. I hobbled, and it seemed to me that the hinge on which my body depended was broken. I was a one-woman catastrophe, and my friends were suffering from compassion fatigue. How many times can you send flowers to various hospitals? Issue get well cards. I now live in a house with a fence with Les and our sons. Our garden is shamelessly unkempt and the paint is peeling from the front door. I will tell you about two things you will find in the spare room. My writing desk and Les's drum kit. 
In these two details, you have everything you need to know. Evidence of a shared life, of the willingness of the fox to lie down with the hare. I will leave it to you to decide who is the fox and who is the hare, but anyone who has tried to share the same ear with another breathing creature will recognise it is possible to be both fox and hare at once. The computer I used to write much of this book is now in the boys' room, where they use it to play rudimentary computer games. I don't need it anymore, for I have a better computer at the office where I now go to work. For the moment, I have no need for fiction, for in the year 2000, I am once again a woman of the working world, with a regular salary and a train to catch. For the past year, I've been the editor of a Saturday feature section of a Melbourne newspaper, with money once again in my purse. It is an interesting job, devoted to books, arts, and what are known curiously as ideas, and I am grateful to have it. For one thing, it has allowed me to pay off the hefty personal loan I took out in January 1999 to pay for the colostomy reversal. Did I tell you that I am now all of a piece? That I am no longer inside out? Did I tell you that my once captured rosy flesh has dived beneath my skin again, like a joyously released fish, never to be exposed to the air until my body's final decay? That when I share a bath now with Casper and Elliot, they ask when my sore tummy will get better? And that Elliot sometimes traces the thick scar with his finger and once said that it looked like a lizard? Did I mention that they are already slipping away? That each day takes them further and further away from their baby selves? Casper goes to kindergarten four days a week, and Elliot for two sessions. Ever since I went to work full-time, Les has gone part-time, working three days a week and caring for the boys the other two days. Caspar is now four years old, although he remains sceptical of the calendar. The day after his fourth birthday, he turned to me with a sorrowful face and said, My birthday didn't work, Mum. I'm still three. But you are four, my darling, and soon you will be five. Soon you will be fifteen, twenty. Soon you will slip away into your own life. For the moment, though, you are still mine, as if we share the one life. I am your mother. Les is your father. You are our loved first son. Caspar still occasionally appears to me like a complicated recipe that I must follow carefully. He is a sensitive child, and the world must be explained to him slowly and cautiously. If I rush past him, as is my wont, his reactions are sometimes violent. More than once I have stopped the car and threatened to leave him by the roadside. But if Casper and I are sometimes entangled communication, Elliot's workings seem transparent to me. I intuitively understand his motivations, the wellsprings of his rages, in ways that are obscured from me in Casper. I can always calm Elliot, talk him down, as it were, from the window ledge. He is an energetic boy, always jumping, from trees, from cubby houses, from sofas. His passion is wrestling, and he is always ready to be tickled. Almost every day I learn something new from them, and almost every day they also make me laugh. For Christmas last year, Casper got a new book about escaping circus elephants. In the story, the little boy who rescues the elephants finally takes them home. Maybe we could take the elephants home, Cappy, I said. 
Where would we put them? Mummy, you can't take the elephants out of the story. Reader, please give this point your consideration as you finish this book. These carefully chosen words, recreating for public consumption some of the most private and intimate moments of my life. Consider this, won't you, as you come to the end. You cannot take the elephants out of the story. It seems to me that since I gave birth to my sons, my life in every way is broader, richer, deeper. They have drawn from me my best self. And while physically I am not the woman I once was, I am a better woman. I know for certain now that I am fully attached to life and love, and that life and love have fully attached themselves to me. My arms are full. I no longer have the sense that my true life is just out of reach, if only I could find my way to it. I am fully here at last. <laughs>